thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be on We're Not Fine. I love, love the name. I love it. (laughs) We're not, right? (laughs) Right. And that was the first thing she said when we talked. She was Mm -hmm. like, I love the name. (laughs) Yes. This podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor-patient, or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. Friends, we're back. We are back. Welcome. And you don't know this, but we just took a three-week break and we were all over the place. We were all over the place. We kind of, you know, every, I, I try every like three months to get out of town. Road trips are one of my favorite absolute things to do. And so I took a road trip to the South. Like I decided to kind of take a look at a different culture that I've not experienced. So I went to Louisville. I went to Charleston. I went to Asheville. I did a day trip in Savannah. Yep. Savannah, George got some peach cider. It was outstanding. And I'll tell you, Talia, tell me. Um, it was a, a, a pretty eye awakening experience in ways that were not all great. Like I felt, I felt a little ignorant at times actually, because I went, uh, on a tour in Savannah. One of the big touristy things to do is to go to a slave quarters and mm-hmm. slave owners, um, site. And, and I will tell like you something incredibly painful. And I'm really impressed that you did it. It's like, we have to force ourselves to do these things. I think we do. Was it terrible? You know, when I was 16, I went to Dachau, a concentration camp in Germany, and yeah. on, a, on a student trip. And there was a similar feeling to it. It was very sad for me. Like, I had a very sick feeling in my stomach the whole time. Um, I wasn't sure how to respond. In fact, I was even hesitant to go on the tour because I waited. I'm like, it was $25 for the entrance. And I'm like, do I want to do this? Because do I want to have this, like, feeling of... The feeling is horrible. I mean, it's just like an it's a un- really horrible feeling, unfathomable cruelty. So it was kind of interesting. Um, I would say a couple things. First of all, I found out that Louisville is like a ridiculously it's like progressive. There were rainbow flags all over on the street I was on. I, I love loved it. my hotel. I I would say it was eye opening. But I will say even you know I get to the hotel in Charleston, and I'm checking in, and the guy helping me with my luggage, as well as the amazing guy behind the desk, like both very helpful people in this really lovely hotel. Um, but I finally just said, can I ask an ignorant question? And they said, yeah. And I said, they're, they were like, yeah, ask away anything. And I said, why don't you have accents? And seriously, he yeah. said, I'm hiding my accent from you. And I was mortified but it's like the southerners hiding their accent from the northerners or it like, felt like a northern versus southern issue they or feel like we are judgmental well or? his comment when i said so why would you hide your because I, I i went there to immerse myself in the culture right like i want to oh. i want to immerse myself wherever i go whether it's abroad whether it's uh domestic um and this this dude actually said that i would find him stupid i would think he was stupid if he talked with his accent 
And I will tell you, never occurred to me. It was really shocking. And I said, that makes me feel very sad. And then I thought about it and I thought, I bet a bunch of people do feel that way. Right. I don't know. I just don't know. Um, Because I think people, you know, I went to a Bruins game uh, with my friends out in Boston and I probably have referenced this on a previous podcast, but you know, I get every once in a while, I'll be, yeah, I'll get like people like, yeah, you betcha yelling my way. And I'm like, oh, I know they're talking to me. When I go to LA, my good friends there, they're always like, oh yeah, you know, and they just think it's like, it's so funny. I mean, Rob has a Southern accent and it it does. I don't even really hear that when I talk Well, that's because we've been together for 25 years. He's been living in the North in Minnesota. And so I think that it's probably Northified. So I will tell you the part that was really striking to me is I felt very ignorant, actually. And I will tell you that the the uh, the tour was actually called the complicated relationships between slave owners and their slaves. Right. And that doesn't land right. It that wasn't is, complicated. It is not complicated. It was and actually forced. a black participant in the tour said, is that what we're calling it now? Oh, that makes me feel really yucky. Talia, it was painful. And I remember I left and I'm like, I got to get out of here and process kind of how I'm feeling. So I did talk with people about it afterwards just to kind of get a sense of it because it's like the complicated relationship between an abuser and the victim. That is what it was. Yep. So I didn't love it. And, you know, and yet at the same time, I want to say to people, like I started as I was traveling, I was like, got into Kentucky and I'm like, holy shit, this is a beautiful state. Mm -hmm. Then Tennessee. Holy shit. That's a beautiful state. Then South Carolina and North Carolina could not get over how incredibly lush and gorgeous these states are. And I will say to the people of Charleston, oh, my God, the seafood, the food was so good. I would go back just for the food. But I found myself very sad about kind of it almost felt like the Civil War was still in existence. Like the North and the South, they're very real differences. And it made me very kind of contemplative. And I'm still processing it, I'll tell you. Right. Like I, I always look for a place where I might buy a second home someday during the winter time. I'm having a little seasonal affect these days. Oh yeah. Um, me in terms too. of my mood, and Take so me with you. I know, right? So I was looking at Asheville. I was looking at these places, and I'm like, I think politically, I don't think I could do very well. And you know, I wear my equality T-shirts when I travel. I thought I welcome any conversation with people about human equality um, at any place that I go. That part makes me sad as well. Although I feel like I have friends that when they, they are either from the South, but they talk about that the North does not have an accurate understanding of the South. And that in fact, especially here in Minnesota, that it feels like it's much more segregated than in the South. So you went South. I did. And I went North. Even though you don't know that you could get more north than Minnesota. <laughs> oh, I do. Because when I say about, and everyone's about. like, are you, are you uh, Canadian? I'm not. So, I just want to make one more comment. Yes. I had three shrimp and grits. Oh, God, I'm so I had so much shrimp and grits. I love shrimp and grits. And they are amazing. Love. I have so many restaurants I could plug, but I'm not going to because I, you know, I just don't want to do that yet. But anyway, tell me about the north. Tell yes. me what you did. Well, so we decided to do a family trip up north to Grand Marais, and then we went back down to Duluth. Funny, I've never been there. I've been to Duluth, though. Grand Marais, oh my gosh, it was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. But a few of the highlights, it's also the only way that we can be alone with our 15-year-old is if we kidnap him, where he has no friends that he could be hanging out with, and then we just, like, road trip. And then he's all ours. I love it. You're doing that weird face again. Am I? 
We're not even going to go there. <laughs> but the two highlights, one was the black sand beach in Silver Bay. It was so magical. Beautiful. It didn't even look real. And then one of the reasons why we went up north to begin with is our little one is obsessed with like geology, nature, rocks, animals, all the things. And he told us about these rocks called euperlites. And so we went on a Uperlite hunt with blue lights, UV lights, and we went in the middle of the night, a.k.a. 10, 15 p.m. Uper. It was Uper. <laughs> it was Uper. Was it a Uper time? So we combed the beach with our lights, and then he found one, which was the most exciting moment of his life. And then... I was like, okay, I'm going to head back to the car. Are you ready? I am. And then I was just walking, doing my thing. And it was real dark. And I'm a city girl. I've never seen anything so dark in my life. Like stars, maybe a few. No streetlights. There were no streetlights. Yeah. I've never experienced this kind of darkness. And yeah. I had a flashlight and I flashed it up. And I saw this long, dark shadow figure. Yep. And I was like, well, that was creepy. And it was like walking towards me and I was walking towards it. Was it was Sasquatch. That, well, I got a lot of questions after this because I immediately was like, oh, that was just a play of light. Like, that was just my eyes are playing tricks on me. Ha ha ha. Totally freaking out. Flashing my flashlight all around, trying to recreate that same thing. And I couldn't do it. And then I started running all by myself to the car. And I was like booking it as fast yeah. as I could. And then I got to the car, Did locked it, it. And I didn't just lock it once. I locked it like ding, ding, ding. Like locked it like 20 times. And then finally, you know, everyone came back to the car. And so my boys started peppering me with questions because I was just like, oh, funny thing. I thought I saw this thing. And they were like, tell us more. And then they were asking me questions like, you know, was it? upright or was it flat was it floating ground? was it hairy was it smooth and, <laughs> and then, i was like you guys it was just a shadow and then thank you mom for locking us out in the wilderness with this <laughs> lock, 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 lock. while you're safe and we're out with this figure figure a walking <laughs> figure so the boys came <laughs> to the conclusion real quick when yeah. i was like it was probably just a shadow and they were like let me explain the universe to you, mom, but you can't flash a flashlight in front of you and see your shadow. And I was like, ew. And then they were like, let me show you some White Walker videos. And then we also got in doubt. We were just like, went into this rabbit hole of like yep. white walkers, Sasquatch sightings in the North Aliens. Shore. Yeah, I think it was one of those. Which do you think it is? What did your kids decide? We decided it was a White Walker because it was like this long figure that was walking towards me and then disappeared. I've always wanted to be the Night King from Game of Thrones. I could see it. It's going to happen. The only difference is the eyes, but I think we could work on that with some contact Yeah, that's lenses. a contact lens issue. I'm going to get the whole costume. Yeah. And then I'm going to show up and you won't know if it's one of those figures or if it's <laughs> your co-host. Except. I think I might know. Because, Why would you know? Because of the goatee. It's going to mm. totally throw the whole thing. I don't know that I'll have a goatee anymore because I will become <laughs> the night king. Are you going to creep us out yeah, a little in bit. the I middle might. of the night? I might do that. You know what? I know you're not going to because you live 40 minutes away. Um, I can drive. 
the Night King actually doesn't need that. He rides a horse as far as he needs to go. That might be like two hours. So how are you feeling it now? Are you feeling like you're still a little bit mystified? You know what? I have completely gaslit myself into believing that it was just a play. No, it wasn't. I think we need to go back to the site and do and bring Kaya and and bring some spirit back into the place, whoever it happens to be. My only request is that you are closer to it than I am. Because you don't need to be the fastest when you're running away. You just can't be the slowest. I will not be the slowest. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) I'm game. I love that story. I'm glad we also both got away. It was beautiful. But you know, I'll tell you more importantly. We had the most amazing conversation with a woman named Leah today, who is going to be our guest for today's episode. We had the greatest conversation. She was ridiculously vulnerable. I do want to put a bit of a disclaimer to our audience and make sure that you know that this topic is very sensitive. So if domestic violence and some very, very descriptive parts of the conversation might trigger you, we encourage you to either not watch or be aware that that's coming in preparation for today's episode. That's right. I yeah. mean, it was so powerful and so yeah. eye-opening and it is sensitive and it does have a beautiful ending with just this yeah. feeling of freedom and empowerment. And she is so, I mean, she's just such a gift and I'm so glad that she was on and without further ado, Here's the interview. You guys, we are so excited to introduce to you Leah Lamella, that she is remarkable. And look at this gorgeous red hair. And she likes to think of herself as a New Jerseyan at heart. And I love that you always, when you when I ask you about you, you always say, I'm quirky. And it just makes me so happy. And you say you've got a fishing rod in one hand and a Milwaukee drill in the other, which I I don't know anything about this, but I think the most interesting part is that you were in medical aesthetics for about a decade. And then you made this really interesting pivot into being an electrician. And now you have this amazing podcast called The Sparky Life. Where you are empowering women to get into the trades you want to like help everybody that are in the trades think of it as elevating society and that they're contributing rather than thinking of themselves as people who had no other choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but you're here today because you are kind enough to share with us your really difficult, painful story of being in a relationship for, I think it was like seven or eight years, right? That was leading into some really scary domestic violence. And you're going to tell us a little bit about that. And I could not be more grateful for your open heartedness, your vulnerability and sharing your story with all of our listeners and viewers and us. Well, yeah, you know, um, as we said in our intro, this is a very sensitive topic and will likely not only resonate with a lot of our viewers and listeners, but also this is a topic that really needs to be discussed openly and honestly in a number of ways. And, you know, the best way, I think, to start this conversation, I'm also incredibly grateful that you're willing to be vulnerable and share your experience with us. Thank you for being with us. It's a big it's a big honor to have this conversation with you. Um, I want to know just generally, like, 
Tell us about the beginning of that relationship. Tell us about the red flags that happened. Tell us how it turned into a domestically violent situation. Just tell us your story, if you might. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be on We're Not Fine. I love, love the name. I love it. Because <laughs> yeah. we're not, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And that was the first thing she said when we talked. She was mm-hmm. like, I love the name. <laughs> yes. And, yep. Yes, yes. And now you so, see it in writing. Yes, it's gorgeous, by the way. Love it. Are you on sign? All right. So the beginning of the relationship, I happened to know this person in high school. So I knew him when I was 15. And I believe that's one of the reasons why I felt a false sense of safety, because I knew them when they were younger. When they were younger, I knew the family background and there was violence uh, within the home then. And one of the things this person would say is that they would never commit violence that was done to them on anyone else. So there was this setup of an image of who I believed this person to be. Years later, I was in Boston. I was a skincare director overseeing three different facilities. And they reached out to me on Facebook. <laughs> and they were currently living in New Jersey. So we started a long distance relationship where on the weekends I would go to Jersey and they would come to Boston. And in the beginning, it was like I met the man of my dreams. Everything Mm -hmm. that I would want, that's how he presented himself. And I made a big mistake that I didn't know was a mistake at the time, which was these people are very clever. They're actually intelligent. And these types of predators will ask questions like, well, what are you looking for in a long-term relationship? What's important to you? And they see, they come across as very invested in what interests you and your well-being. And they ask these point, point questions in order to then provide that. So it's you're, you're setting them up to imitate what yeah. you want. And then all of a sudden you're shocked. Wow, it's the man of my dreams. How did this happen? How did this just appear upon? Well, you basically gave them a play-by-play on how to do that. So uh, he proposed. I said, yes. I moved in uh, with him in New Jersey. And then that's when the cracks started to show. So, so the that way was... that I think about that is that's when like people's ugly starts leaking out when they can't keep it under the facade any longer. The, so how long did that I don't want to know if it was like a love bombing, but like how long did he try to be your perfect man? And then okay. when did the red flag start? Love bombing? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. like knew my language of love and just <laughs> onslaught, <laughs> like new core. <laughs> it was just flowers. Well, for viewers that don't know what love bombing is, it's like really just overwhelming you with all the ways that you feel loved, all the ways that you would feel regarded and respected and heard and seen um, in every way possible. Yep. Yes. It, it was like a fairy tale. 
He was like, yeah. here's my knight in shining armor. Oh my gosh, chivalry is not dead. Just very personal things that I enjoy he would provide. And it seemed like I was the center of his universe. So you couldn't help but be overwhelmed and flattered that you appear to be so per important to this person. Yeah. And I would say it was probably six months, a good six months, mm -hmm. and before he proposed. So when I moved in, and there, there were some red flags before I moved in that I didn't identify as red flags in the beginning because I, through this experience, I now understand that I grew up in a dysfunctional family unit that... Yeah created situations in which i believed certain actions were actions of love because that was my that was my environment and they're not actions of love so for example very controlling very controlling behavior and it would be presented as where are you going i want the address i want to know the people i want you to call every like 15 or give me a text every 15 i need to know you're okay I'm concerned about your safety. Yeah, it comes in this protection or caring mode, right? It looks like caring. Yes, yes. And I grew up in an environment like that. And again, the push would always be, it's because I'm concerned about your safety and your well-being. And if God forbid something would happen, I would need to know how to locate you. So then you get the location devices on the phones and things of this nature. Mm -hmm. But it, slowly but surely, it's encroaching more and more crossing boundaries of privacy like then it's reading through your personal journals or your things and it's well i i need to know that you're okay i need to know that you know you're not telling me everything i i, I i'm doing this in your best interest oh i just get the chills thinking about it and so like when the little red flags were popping up were you still thinking like oh he's just really protective like this feels right still or were there little like hairs on the back of your neck that were waving like there were no antenna that were like oh sweetheart this doesn't feel good no, I, I grew up in an environment similar to those behaviors. So to me, that was comforting. That was yeah. I, I knew this to these actions to be love and this type of narcissistic. And I'm not a doctor, but I'd bet money sociopathic yeah. person. Um, they had their story and they presented themselves in a way of a victim. And I'm a people pleaser and I'm a fixer or I used to be anyway. These are characteristics that I held again from environment. And so excuses would also be, well, my ex-wife was unfaithful. And so I'm learning how to trust again. You need to be patient with me. And being the type of person that I was, you know, of course, I'm, I want to be supportive. So I'm allowing things that I shouldn't allow based off of this premise that he's wounded. And so I need to be supportive and help him through this. I feel like it's not just him saying you're going to have to deal with this. Like anyone who hears their partner say, I'm so sorry, I get I get what I'm doing and be patient with me because I'm working on it. 
I feel like that would keep people around for a lot longer. Oh, absolutely. And the, but the key that I learned was, <laughs> and again, I this goes back to the way I grew up. I didn't understand that when you say something and there isn't, it just needs to be tiny steps forward in the direction of change. It's not going to happen overnight. And there will be several times where things will be repeated, but there needs to be some action shown of change. Mm. Telling someone over and over again, how you're trying to change and how much you love them and they're working on it is not sufficient. Well, and what people say is that apologies without behavior change are just manipulation. Mm -hmm. And so you were noticing that there were maybe apologies or small acknowledgments, but there were not incremental little changes. So at the time, I didn't notice that there wasn't incremental changes. In fact, when then the predator, the offender, when they would do something that was violent or upsetting or to create um, pain, then shortly after, you're getting this love bombing. So you're thinking this love bombing is the change of behavior. Sure. And yeah. it cycles. And then you get that trauma bond response, which I learned later is actually a chemical thing that occurs to further in your brain to they can they can see it to further connect you to this toxic person do you want to talk more um you know one of the things that when you say trauma bonding you know those of us who are professionals and work in this field know what that is do you want to talk more about it from your point of view like how that occur what what that is what it feels like even yep. and yeah it starts off really small so raising your voice and I actually grew up in a house where you're not to raise your voice. I didn't experience physical violence in my dysfunctional family unit. So none of that was something that I would tolerate or I, I thought that was acceptable. And then it's punching the wall, intimidation. And then it's a shove. And after every, every incident, it's progressively getting just a little bit worse. But then, of course, you have this flowers and apology and crying and promise of becoming better. And to throw an extra wrench in this particular situation, I learned that this person had um, addiction issues with drugs and alcohol. And I didn't grow up in a, in a household that had addiction in drugs and alcohol there are addictions in other areas mm -hmm. and I, I i had this false sense of well i didn't grow up in a home where people beat each other and yelled at each other so of course you know i'm never going to be associated with anything like that but uh, a, abuse emotional abuse and and mental abuse can then create a situation where you are a target later on for physical abuse which i didn't understand at the time so I hear you are feeling like, how could he do this? I don't understand. I, uh, and then you have him with his background. So I'm trying to be empathetic towards, well, that's what he knows. So we have to work together to, to 
create new habits, that this is unacceptable. Even then you knew that that's like, this isn't right. We need to work together to have this be better. Yes. I I actually grew up, um, I had uh, experience with NAMI since the age of 12, and I actually went to college for psychology. So I'm very passionate about psychology. I'm very empathetic towards mental illness and believe there's this huge stigma. And I'm the type of person that was like, when I get married and we were engaged, I'm ride or die. Like if there is an issue and it's like, and at this time, I thought this behavior was connected to the addiction. I didn't understand the dynamic. And I believed, okay, I got to support them. I got to be there for them. I called psychologists, psychiatrists. I set up appointments. We went to counseling together. Wow. And how was he in therapy? Did he seem like he was someone that was like open, listening, owning his own shit, wanting to change? Or what did those? In the session, it appeared as though he was trying. After the session, it would be, I don't like this physician i don't like that they're they're not hearing me i don't feel connected these are legitimate feelings and valid that i feel that's valid and so then we would go to the next person i didn't understand at the time he really wasn't interested in any of that because his belief is there's nothing wrong with him. He likes the right. way things are. <laughs> and that the problem is me. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you, you know, when when he would leave those sessions after it appeared that maybe the sessions were productive, did you have any sort of physical sort of like anxiety or feeling of like, why would you not like that person when it appeared you were connected, you were sharing? Did you have a sense in your body at any point that something's not right about this, but you kind of just went ahead and found another new therapist or whatnot? Did you know something in retrospect? Did you feel something was wrong? So I grew up with gaslighting and narcissistic behavior gotcha. being normal. So yep. I, I, my belief in my ability to assess my own reality was poor to begin with there you go yeah. left me That's very cute. susceptible and i also want to say that even when you talked a little bit and i realize we're interjecting on your beautiful story so i yeah. hope it's not too interruptive no. uh, but leah one of the things i would say is that you know that tendency to like care for somebody who has mental health issues or whatnot it can really spin into codependency so easily where we start to take care of other people chronically at our just dis- <laughs> yeah at our expense i see that resonates with you um <laughs> right? keep going please this is beautiful go ahead yeah so i had a codependent behavior that i didn't realize at the time was codependent behavior yeah. and so so then I didn't realize I didn't get those those tingling sensation that something is very wrong until I got clocked in the face. When I got hit for the first time, punched in the face, that's when I realized, whoa, like physical violence. This is something is very wrong. And then when by this time, so much gaslighting, so much trauma bonding even though there was the love bombing after that, I still sensed something was wrong. That was the trigger for me, that something was off. It was actually actual physical physical violence. Yes. It's so interesting. 
all the things that we can talk ourselves into or out of that like i'm a ride or die i love him i see his background he's trying he's such a good apologizer i know he loves me i've known him since high school like i can just imagine the narrative that is outweighing like this doesn't feel good this doesn't feel right Mm -hmm. And then it was the actual clocking in the face that seems to be like the wake up of I can't, I can't be in this. Yes. But by that time, I was addicted to the cycle. It was ingrained. Mm -hmm. And this is really, this is a, something I learned that I feel is very important to mention. When they created this perfect imaginary partner because this partner doesn't actually exist right this person that's my ideal soulmate in my mind at the time right things are so magical and good and storybook you don't want to lose that and you hold you grip onto it life or death grip yeah thinking how can i get it back there yeah how can i i had that i had true love storybook how can i get that again how can we fix it to get that again and so you stay thinking that that's a possibility but it was never there it was never there to begin with this is what i wonder if it's also like but i know who he really is because this is how we used to be so he's going through whatever it is he's going through but i'm going to get through to him and find that again it's like we're still gaslighting ourselves because if you see it once or he shows up in that way once he'll do it again like you just hope that he is but you said the critical piece here that was listening to your scripts and developing an understanding of what made you feel regarded and loved and that wasn't really who he was because you weren't seeing the real person which kind of speaks to the reality that when we're in relationships we want to show our true selves and we want to feel that that other person is showing us their true selves which is never a fair fairy tale right it's never a perfect scenario because yeah, it's real so, it's not perfect yeah. it's real right. oh my gosh leah right right uh, by that point there were other things behind the scenes occurring like they take you away from your family unit they cut you off from support. So they'll say things like that person doesn't, isn't really your friend. I overheard them doing this or saying that, or you should cut them off and you do. And then your family, they, they're using you. They're manipulating you. Now this happened to be true being as though I come from a dysfunctional family unit. So some of the things he highlighted, there was truth behind it and therefore further solidified that this person is protecting me and these people are abusing me wow so now i'm i'm segregated from others and at this point he had told me he doesn't want me to work he wants me to you know raise the family have the kids be at home which at the time i was all about and uh, excited to do so i have no connection to finances And I made the statement, if you ever put your hands on me again, I'm gone, I'm out the door, okay? Mm-hmm. The next time that it happened, because of course this didn't stop, he was hands around my neck, 
I was blacking out and I thought I was going to die. And I was looking into his eyes and this is something that reminded me of my grandmother passing away. When someone passes away, you look at them and they don't look the same. It's like a shell of a person. Right. And when I was staring into his eyes, it looked like shark eyes, like he wasn't there. And that whatever this entity was, they're enjoying it. And oh. I thought, oh, my God, this is how I'm going to die. People will hear and know the shame was so great that this is how I'll go. That's when I realized if I don't leave, he'll kill me. I'm going to die. He will kill me. I'm going to die. At that point, you're walking on eggshells and you go into survival mode. So you're so busy trying to survive and prevent physical harm you can barely function outside of that realm and the person has created a situation where there is nowhere to go yeah. you don't have finances you don't have access to the car he would take my passport he would take the car keys he would make it so that the only way to leave was to walk out the door when he wasn't present and then good luck like I, I had a I have a, a dog and a cat, two cats, and they're like my fur children. Yeah. <laughs> and course. under no circumstances was I going to leave them because he would threaten physical harm on them and would punch the dog and I would interfere inter interfere and then I would get beat for doing so. And so you're so preoccupied with just staying alive, it's hard to come up with a plan. To leave at that point. And I'm also assuming that he set this all up where he's got your location. He probably oh. knows all your passwords. He's cut Social. you off from everybody. And I don't know. I mean, how do you even you don't have access to the finances? Like how how did you even do it? I started to call shelters. Sneak. And any opportunity that I had to call shelters and then go through the phone and make sure I delete the history. It's a, like high, high anxiety because I knew that if he were to find that I was trying to leave, that that would be the end of me. Okay. All of the shelters that I was contacting, the majority of them wouldn't allow me to come because of the pets. So the idea was, well, you just put them in a shelter and then you could potentially get them when you find housing. And somebody who's an animal lover would never take that risk. And I know there's like argument, well, you're you can't possibly protect them where you're at. But if you could try to imagine a mother and their children, I know it's not the same thing. I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm saying that the feeling is you want to do everything you can to protect the thing that you love, your, your animal, your, your child, whatever, whichever. And to be separated and not know for, for all, you know, they're going from the fine frying pan to the fire. 
That's right. And there's a lot of animal shelters that are kill shelters. And I would never forgive myself if I put my animal in that situation and they end up not existing either way. Leah, this does not sound strange at all. And I think so many people can relate. I am obsessed with my dog. Sometimes I think I might choose them over my sons. <laughs> Boys. Well, oh, I, I'm so sorry. But I'm, okay. I'm also picturing that you have no strength, no confidence. You're in survival mode, that your brain is not coming up with a whole bunch of new, brilliant ideas of how to get out and that every obstacle feels insurmountable. And so when you're thinking about like this, just yes, I could do this thing to save my life, but I'm not willing to risk the lives of these little beings that I'm looking after. Well, and I would say two things about this. One is I, I do hear strength. Like I hear that you were really looking at uh, viable options to leave. And if one of these shelters might have said, absolutely, bring your pets. You can have your own private room. You can bring their cages. I honestly think it might have been increasingly likely that you'd have left. But I want to go to the pets as a little bit more of a, a deeper topic because your pets would be one less loss. Like in, as you're as you're grieving and as you're trying to process like what this is going to look like at least holding on to something that you have known for these this time period and you had as part of your life. These pets represent comfort. They represent some permanent attachments that you can take with you and not lose absolutely everything. So there are means by which you can avoid feeling, I think, a deeper sense of grief in this process. So, yeah, I would agree. And Cato actually would interfere and try to protect me. Nice. So this feeling that this animal is trying Putting itself at risk to oh. protect me made me more convinced that hell or high water, like we're either surviving this together or we're not surviving it together. Yeah. So I want to give a biggest shout out to Providence House in New Jersey. They're amazing, amazing oh. facility. Um, I, before I contacted Providence House, I reached out to my family. I finally submitted and told them what was going on. And I thought that they would come in, you know, (laughs) guns blaring and come to the rescue. And that is not what happened at all. (laughs) I was told it was my fault that I incurred this. I, I created this situation that they knew this would happen and that I was stubborn and foolish and everything that was basically happening was because I made bad choices and it was on me. I can't believe this. Like, I just can't believe that. I mean, no one would have invented blame the victim unless it was something that often happens, which it also explains that you were drowning in your own shame, maybe because you intuitively knew that the people that you thought would support you would then blame you for being in the situation to begin with. Except, Leah, you've already referenced, you know, part of the reason, and I appreciate so much your insight and the work you've done on understanding the choices that you've made to have these people in your life. You referenced a dysfunctional family system. I don't know that you're entirely surprised that your family was not there for you. So I think when you come from that background, while we have this wishful thinking about what their response might be, it doesn't sound like your family was that person. So go ahead. No, yes. And and 
you hit the nail on the head that you'd think by this point I would have anticipated. However, as I've learned, a child never stops wishing or wanting uh, their parents' approval. That's right. How true is that? No matter how unhealthy, no matter it, it, with the knowledge, it might never happen. It's very hard for a child to separate and stop hoping or wishing deep down that that love will be there. So I think even though maybe in the back of my mind or unconsciously, I knew that I wasn't going to be rescued, I was still deep down hoping for it. And um, and the other aspect to this, you know, even this predator, even this person is not all evil. There is evil and good in all of us. Okay, so even though the family unit is dysfunctional, they're not evil people. Another aspect of this that I learned later is it's ingrained survival behavior. So by them saying, it's my fault, I did this, that means that they're not going to do the behaviors or the things that I did. So that way they're protected and it won't happen to them. And I'm also thinking like for your family, them saying this is you is also absolving them of any potential part that they've played in setting you up to be vulnerable for this. Yes. Like they will not touch this with a 10 foot pole. This was you making bad decisions. It's just yes. heartbreaking. So at that point, I need, I realized if I want to be saved, I got to save myself. I came across a domestic violent hotline, which brought me to Providence House. And these programs are so important. <laughs> I would not be here today if it wasn't for programs like this. So please support donate, advocate for these types of facilities. <laughs> when I spoke to Providence House, they were, they did exactly what you said, Doug. They were like, come on over, pets included. Everybody just come. Like <laughs> it's let's figure out an exit plan, a safe exit plan of how you can leave and we're, you're going to leave. I also just want to mention that when we're growing up, we're taught that, you know, certain supports that are in place in our civilization are here to protect us, like the police and, you know, your teachers or professors. And I, I, I think it's important to know that all of these systems are systems. And so there aren't perfect, just like people aren't perfect. And one thing that happened that I realized is the cops aren't going to come fast enough. I hate to break it <laughs> to people, but that's that's what happens. They can't come fast enough. And that's why a lot of women die in these types of situations. And men, too. There are men that get involved in domestic violence situations. One of my very, very good girlfriends, her brother, unfortunately, didn't survive the situation. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah. yeah. So it goes on both ends of the spectrum. And. Knowing that you can't rely on that 911 call. So there are, are things that I've learned that you can do to protect yourself. I'm a big advocate of reading. <laughs> 
And one of the books that I highly, highly recommend for domestic violence survivors is uh, Bulletproof. I also recommend for for uh, people in general to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm going to I apologize if you ever hear this. I'm going to butcher her last name and she hates it. <laughs> so um, it's Evie Pompolaris. Pompolaris. She sounds like a good name. <laughs> sounds pretty good. Sounds like a good She's fantastic. Her book is wonderful. It gives you tangible things that you can do to help you feel empowered. And it was vital in my healing process. Wow. So, so did you find that book while you were recovering and safe at Providence House or? Yes, actually when, okay. so <laughs> there's more. <laughs> there's always more. This is like, but good, right? It's a, a much better alternative to the story having ended that moment that you thought it was ending. So right. thank God. Yes. Uh, I came up with an exit plan. I had a couple of people who came to help me move things. That was a battle. A lot of people do not want to get involved. So I had to make up why I was leaving necessarily, not be completely honest. Wow. And I safely got to Providence House and he tracked me down and found me. No. Yeah. Yeah. How? The car. The car. Like he put a tracker on the car or he still was tracking you? He I don't I don't know if there was a tracker on the car. I don't believe there was a tracker on the car, but he can identify the car and I'm going to backtrack a little bit. One of the attacks, the police were called and a restraining order was put in place. Okay. This is another issue. <laughs> the same night he was let go, came to the house, got in no problem. Like I said, the, the cops weren't able to come soon enough. And that's when I first realized it threatening to call 911 and calling 911 isn't enough because it matters how fast they can get there. So um, at that time, I didn't know he was going to be released the same night. And he, you know, came to the he can have access. He can easily break in and he can, you know, it's it's doesn't it's what, three minutes to till you can't breathe. I mean, like you you pass, I believe. I can try to fight him off to the best of my ability. At the end of the day, he's physically stronger than me. I dropped the restraining order, terrified that if I didn't, that night was going to be my last night. Mm -hmm. And did he demand and ask that you drop it? Oh, yeah. But it wasn't sure. it, it wasn't a first a demand. At first, it was, you know, don't do this to us. This is irreparable damage. Like, we won't come back from this. And I wasn't hearing it anymore. I didn't believe what he was saying. What I was seeing was they arrested him, set set charges on him, put him in jail, released him the same night. I can't believe and it. And he came right back to the house. <laughs> he can get in. He can get to me. And the police can get here fast enough. And that's what stuck in my head. Like that's I'm right. on my own. I am on my own. So 
that's why I dropped the restraining order for good faith, because I was terrified that if I didn't, he'd kill me right then and there and be completely capable of doing so. <laughs> so that's a situation that I'd like people to recognize when they complain about uh, the the survivor constantly dropping restraining orders or not following through with the protection of the police. There's yeah. only so much the police can do. <laughs> Their hands are tied on certain things. And at the end of the day, a restraining order is a piece of paper. Another thing that I learned later on is that the piece of paper, it doesn't protect you across state lines. Wow. So there's many facets to this. So when you're watching those crime movies and you say to yourself, oh, I would never put up with that. That's never going to happen to me. Right. It's a mistake to think like that. You should learn about social behavior and healthy relationships and what warning signs to look out for and educate yourself so that you are prepared and knowledgeable instead of just assuming That's right. that you will never be in a situation like that because it can happen to anyone. Which might be it's it just no matter what kind of a beautiful honeymoon stage you're in, maybe always be paying attention to your level of dependence, isolation from your loved ones, financial that you're you've been cut off, that someone is watching your every move. That I mean, everything that you said, it sounds so important to be paying attention to. Another thing I noticed, though, Leah, is what you what you're saying is he may not have noticed that, you know, because I dropped that restraining order, because I was he was back and blaming me, you know, you what you're doing to us. This is irreparable. You something had shifted inside of you where you were no longer buying what he was selling and where I think you know when you were at the Providence house and he found you and you said you started going to counseling was there enough of an ability to sort of remember who you are and where you're going or did you feel yourself after you know that I'm sure you were still kind of a part of you that's complicated grief right a part of you it's like but I do love him or oh, I do remember. I don't know. Tell us about what that experience was like when he found you. So I learned at Providence House the average time for a survivor to attempts to leave is seven. Oh, that's a lot. It is a lot. Too many. I was lucky that I didn't. It didn't take me seven times when I was in Providence House through the counseling. I was beginning to become empowered. I was beginning to feel like I had some sort of control. And when he found me, I had three options. I could stay in New Jersey and use what we call Section 8 housing, which means mm -hmm. you know, you're, you financially can't afford, but the government is going to assist you. Yep. Subsidized. Yep. Yep. I could... Because I, at this point, I have no job, no money, nothing, just the car and the animals, <laughs> everything gone. <laughs> so um, the second option was a girlfriend offered that I could stay with her. 
And the third option was going to my family, um, who at the time was in another state. And this is the family that wasn't particularly supportive to you and made you feel even more shame than you did to begin with. Right. So me and the counselor discussed it. And we believed that if I remained in New Jersey, that he would find me and he would kill me. And so it would be in my best interest to leave the state. And we knew at this point, the counselor in particular, I didn't understand the full gravity of it because I still wasn't putting together the links of Mm -hmm. how this all kind of came to fruition, but that I would be going into an environment that wasn't healthy, but it would be an environment that I knew. I wouldn't be physically harmed there. So I left the state and continued with court and the case out of state, which was arduous within itself. That's another reason why survivors don't move forward with the court case and the system. Our laws are really bad, (laughs) really bad. And depending on the state determines how much protection you actually have. So uh, he broke the restraining order that I had put in place in the other state and was not penalized because he wasn't in that state. Mm. So he could email me and contact me at his will, harassing begging me to drop charges, threatening me that if I don't drop charges, he'll kill me and my whole family. Oh my God. So when I left the state and was with the family, I was wearing a bed robe like every day. Like I just didn't get out of bed. Very bad depression. Couldn't believe this happened to me. How could I let this happen to me? These are the feelings and the thinking. Right. And I decided that I would never, ever, ever let this happen again. And that's when I did this huge, deep dive introspection. I spoke to specialists. I went to psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors. I read books, so many books. (laughs) Incredible. It's incredible. And I mean, especially in an environment where I feel like you were also getting these messages that you did this to yourself and that you would just begin this process of empowerment and self-love and learning. Yes. It's incredible. And I, I was. Now, I was very lucky. I love my counselor. I see her today. She is amazing. (laughs) We love love hearing that. I would not have come so far so fast if it wasn't for her and her ability to mirror and help me to assess, try to look outside of myself, to guide me. Um, She's incredible. Leah, do you find that even with all of this, like beautiful work that you're doing, I'm so incredibly impressed by all of the different resources that you've found, which of course, Doug and I highly, highly recommend. But 
Do you still feel like there is a part of you that will always be battling some sort of post-traumatic stress or like how does this affect you on the other side? Just thinking about relationships, thinking about self-worth, thinking about attachment, like tell us about maybe that that part. So there there was mental, physical, sexual abuse for through this and the PTSD was bad. So I went through a period of, and I still struggle with being touched and intimacy, anything mm-hmm. coming up from behind me. Um, so there, there are things that, of course, your, your, your body from being in survival mode for so mm-hmm. long, you're going to start to have these behaviors. And I would like to hope that I could potentially rid myself of all of this behavior, survival response, because it wasn't there to begin with. It was from this event. So I haven't been able to completely remove everything at this current moment, but I am in the process and it does get better and better. That's another thing that I'm passionate about sharing can survive this not only can you survive it you can thrive there are there's a way out (laughs) there is a way out and you don't have to let what happened to you change or make you into something that you don't want to be you know leo we talk so much in this professional you know the trauma community about you know resolving trauma and Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily love that word, and I appreciate more how you're talking about it, which is that it's something that might come up. It's something that if somebody touches you or comes up from behind or there is some familiarity with some of the p- patterns that you've experienced, I would say, you know, trauma is not something to uh, avoid entirely. It's something to recognize when it happens and do something different and be aware of what that insight is that you've gained so eloquently and and through a a shitload of hard work, I must say. Um, I'm so deeply impressed with how you talk about it. You know, one of the big, big questions that I had coming into this interview with you was like, how did you figure out what those patterns are? Because I'll tell you, Leah, you know, Talia and I both work with people who have been in domestically violent situations, who have a history of sexual, physical, Uh, emotional abuse situations and it's really hard to understand the origins of why you know what what people's role is is in 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 enabling those experiences but then making sure that you don't repeat those patterns Um, i also will say that one of the biggest issues that i hope to gather for our viewers and listeners is like what do you recommend Mm -hmm. that people do and you said something so beautiful and i just want to say you know you don't have to stay in a situation like this And you don't have to be prone to this and stay in it and just feel trapped and helpless. There's always, always something to do. Yes. Yes. Uh, One thing I discovered through my journey is that uh, we all have these core resources. I I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but this is... Mine in particular was safety. So like what was most important to me on the basic level was to feel safe. Obviously, I grew up not feeling safe. Otherwise, that wouldn't be so important. And I discovered that safety is an illusion. You are never going to be safe. 
many things can happen to you. <laughs> you can do everything right. You can follow all the rules. You can be super aware and trained and vigilant and still something yep. can happen. So That's to right. put so much emphasis on feeling safe is a losing battle. Mm. And what was an aha moment for me was I was speaking to my counselor and I said, am I ever going to feel safe again? And she said, no, you're not. <laughs> it, it might not, the fear might not be from him, but in life you will be afraid of something. Yep. And she said, that's a really great thing. It's because then you get the opportunity to be brave. Because that's what being brave is. So that really resonated with me and changed my entire perspective about being afraid. So whenever I'm scared now, I think to myself, <laughs> this is when I get to put on my armor and, and, and show my bravery and my courage and learn something. Because if I am successful... I'll learn something and be proud of myself. And if I'm not successful, I'll learn something from the process and pivot, figure out what could I have done different. And so that's just going to help me grow. Oh. So that's my new kind of outlook or belief in how fear affects us and safety. <laughs> it's so incredibly powerful on so many levels, but I think that was like a real mic drop moment because I think that, and also like I've done some training in EMDR. Have you ever heard of EMDR? Yes. Yes. So I've, I've done been. some training. It got rusty. I let it go. But essentially I remember working with so many people who had trauma and then you are moving yourself from this negative cognition to a positive one. So like, I am not safe. Your brain is naturally wanting to move to, I am safe. And that was always this hang up because this is an external, like you don't have control over 95%. It's like letting go of that control. But if you are starting to have confidence in your own coping in your own maybe ability to scan the environment in your strength in your bravery that is sort of as good as it gets you know leah one of the things i would observe as you talk about being brave and not you know running from fear i think coming on to this podcast today sharing your story with us felt incredibly brave and courageous you know as you continue to process i have two questions for you one is um, I am somewhat curious if you still worry about his contact, if he is still trying to make contact with you. Um, really, I, for our viewers, how long has it been since you really departed from this relationship? But I also want to know just generally, like as you recount your story, how do you feel? Do those feelings come up? Uh, it felt like a couple times, right? It was very fresh. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak to either of those or both. Regarding how long it's been. So. Yeah. I've been free <laughs> for three years now. What a lovely word. I do um, worry because even though he pled guilty regarding my case, the because he made a plea deal bargain, he wasn't jailed. And this type of person is a predator. They literally enjoy this. They, they enjoy this role. And I'm not alone. So mm. there is a female before me 
and there was me and there's a female after me and another one. And so what I did was I band together with this, these women. And this oh is another gosh. thing that's really, really important that I would like to share. So uh, one of the red flags that I forgot to mention that's vital is one of the previous women reached out to me while, while we were in the courting phase. And she said, he's very dangerous. He broke my jaw. Like, you know, and of course wow. he spun it as, oh, she's a crazy ex. Like, she's just upset because I've terminated the relationship and she's just trying to. So if someone reaches out to you, warning you of someone else, if it's true or not true is irrelevant. What's relevant is that they had that person in their life. So if it's true, you're in danger. If That's it's right. not true, they've attracted somebody who's imbalanced. So that means there's an imbalance within them. And therefore, you should not continue the relationship. Wow. That's a fantastic observation, Leah. It's really important. I want to make a comment, too, before I forget that I think oftentimes when we like hope that the person becomes that charming uh, attentive person and affectionate person that they were at the beginning of the relationship. We fear in some ways that they're going to leave this relationship if we end and they're going to like give somebody else the best of themselves, yes. which is never, ever true. That person will. And you just uh, exemplified that in this example, they go from one to another and they do not change. Yes. There is no one that's going to get that best part of them on a consistent basis. Please respond. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's and that fear was there. I had yeah. that fear in me. Yes. Yep. And I, of course, didn't believe her. And then when I was going through the court case and I was in another state, I reached out to her and I said, I am so sorry. I didn't heed your warning. And we cried together. We talked about our experience and it was literally play by play the same thing. Yeah. He proposed the same way. He said the same things. It was like he knows this formula works and he repeats it. And it was very therapeutic to hear her recant what happened to her and me go, oh, my gosh, I am not alone. Like, I'm not crazy. This is a pattern. This is what he does. And then I tr did the same thing. I tried to warn the next female that was in line and it, it, again same situation she didn't oh she thought it was a crazy ex again he physically assaulted her she has a case against him and then she reached out to me apologizing and i said don't apologize we did the same thing so if i don't want to just say women but if if we could listen to one another yes respect and band together instead of constantly being pit against each other when it yeah. comes to you know females competing for a male or vice versa like that's not the way we no. should be empowered standing together oh my gosh i mean it's just like your story is so powerful and i know that it brought both of us to tears at least once and I, I can't tell you how grateful we are. Like this is, it's, it is incredibly brave for you to then become someone who is sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and empowering other people from what was once such a dependent, vulnerable place. And now you are taking up this beautiful space and guiding and empowering. I mean, 
You're incredible. I'll also share that I actually wasn't brought to tears. What happens for me, I'll be honest, as a man, despite that I'm gay, I get angry. Mm. I get angry at my fellow men for treating women this way, for treating other men this way. Um, and I get protective and, and not necessarily in an enabling way or suggesting women can't take care of themselves. But I just want to say that we as men who do not abuse other people need to stand up and uh, approach our, our fellow men to not treat women this way and to expect them to be better and to treat our, you know, and teach our sons not to treat people this way. That's so I have more of a, a, a sort of a rageful response mm -hmm. like, Let's get these men all together and teach them a lesson. But that's not the right approach either. <laughs> Although Leah's saying maybe it is. Yeah. <laughs> you caught that on the face there. I didn't catch that on your face, Leah. <laughs> We'd like to unleash unleash the Kraken. Yeah. There's a lot of us out there, by the way, who would like to release the Kraken. And so I just want to say that, you know, and I appreciate you identifying that men can be abused too, but men are by and large, the perpetrators of violence and homicide toward girlfriends. And so Leah, that's the part that is most touching. And I'm, I'm so struck when you said the part, I just want to go back to it. When you said you were certain that you would be killed at some point like that, just, that was maybe where it just takes my breath away that you ever, ever, ever had to feel that lack of safety or survival. Um, and I, I wish for no one to ever have that level of fear or uncertainty about their livelihood. This is why I'm so passionate about sharing the story. I feel that by sharing my information and knowledge and experience that it, I'm hoping it will potentially protect someone from entering into a situation like this and also people who have been or are in a situation like this, give them insight on how to get out and give them hope. So the females, the group of us, we've gotten together and um, we're like soul sisters, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have a shared experience for sure. But it's also like there's zero silver lining to a story of domestic abuse, except you know, the comeback and the bonding with these other beautiful women who have been in the same situation. It's incredible. Well, by coming together, we want to make sure that another woman isn't harmed. So she has an active case and there's many, many difficulties with the law and what you can say and what you can't say. One of the issues of why the offenders get out very often is because you can't uh, mention that they were in a domestic violence situation previously, even if they pled guilty in the state of New Jersey. And I want to wow. be clear about that. That can differ in different states. So yeah. we wrote letters to the prosecutor um, because the prosecutor can have the knowledge that this is a pattern and continuing to happen to try to invoke them because they're Many of them are overworked. They have cases through the yin yang and it's very hard for them. They have to make decisions of what are they going to pursue and what are they going to try to play out? And so by re reaching out as a group and explaining and sharing our stories and information, we tried to um, we tried to warn them that if they aren't going to plead deal him again, he will do this again. And we don't want it to come to a point where a woman is killed That's until right. 
he's put in a, a position where he can't harm anyone any longer. So that was empowering. Being able to do that was very empowering. And have some advocacy, not just recovery, but advocacy. And I know we need to wrap, but I wanted to throw out one thing that was just like lingering in my brain before we want you to plug all of your amazing, uh, amazing things. But one thing I wanted to normalize was this idea that even though intellectually, you know that you are in a safer place that maybe the people that you're connecting with are not going to harm you in the same way that you've been harmed. But I want to normalize that our nervous system doesn't move as quickly as what we're understanding intellectually. And that it's our, our nervous system can be so hypervigilant after trauma. And I, I mean, Bessel van der Kolk, do you, have you heard of him? Yes, I read the book. <laughs> the body keeps the score. The body yeah. keeps yes. the score. Incredible resource to just understand what's happening during trauma. So I just wanted to, to wrap with that and an incredible thank you to you. And Leah, will you please tell us, tell us about your amazing podcast. Tell us where people can find you. So throughout this journey, while I was in the women's shelter, I went to a female trade school and fell in love with electrical work. And by doing skilled trades, yeah. I became extremely empowered. Yeah. And by learning about electricity, it taught me, and I'm going to get a little woo-woo here, but about our energies and the electrical um, system within ourselves and everything around us and how things are interconnected and uh I couldn't believe that this wasn't introduced to me as an option when I was younger. Mm. Yeah. I also was shocked that the men weren't experiencing the same thing that I was experiencing. And I thought to myself, this has to change. <laughs> so I created Sparky Life in order to reach out to others, to debunk some myths about construction careers, to encourage more people to think about uh, skilled trades as a option, career option. Um, another book. I'm a book person. Uh, <laughs> the Good Job or The Good Enough Job by Simone Stolzaf, I'm butchering last names here. You're, <laughs> you're gonna have to bear with me. I blame it on my dyslexia. <laughs> Jensen and Jackson, very easy. Yes, you won't got, butcher ours. We got this. Yeah. <laughs> so this sparky life. I love the name so much. People need to go find you. And also, Doug and I are going to be guests on yes! your show. Leah, <laughs> yeah, how can people find you on social media? To, unless you don't want them to. <laughs> no, no, please. Um, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me directly at the sparky life of Leah at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram as sparky life of Leah. We just started YouTube. Uh, <laughs> and Welcome. Leah is L I A. Just so everybody knows. Yes. You are the best like i'm so happy i feel like it was just we stumbled upon each other in our little podcasting group and i'm so incredibly grateful that you are in my world and thank you so much for sharing your story it will it, i'm really hoping it will touch so many and empower so many so thank you yeah i want to say really huge congratulations on your strength in getting out of a very very complicated and complex situation 
Um, I really want to reiterate that, you know, this is not something that has this finite resolution to it and that this is a lifetime of learning and listening to yourselves and moving forward as you as you transition from these domestically violent situations. And really a huge, huge, huge thank you for sharing your vulnerability and, and story with us. I'm really grateful for your time today. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be on the show and very excited for you two to come on the Sparky Life. We can't wait. We can't wait as well. Bye. Yeah, we'll talk to you very soon. Bye. Okay. Doug, she was incredible. She was incredible. And, you know, it's interesting as she was speaking and, and the vulnerability and the stories and the detail by which she accounted for her experience from beginning to end, which, of course, there is no real end. Just it kind of actually triggers some of my own experiences, I'll tell you. I know. You know, a lot of us have, despite being really healthy people, despite having done our work, we still sometimes find ourselves in unfortunate circumstances like that. And it's such a human humanly shared experience it and is. when you're in it it's great to know that you're not alone i know it was yep. incredibly humbling and i couldn't be more grateful that yep. she shared her story we really hope that you found value in it like we did and we thank you so much, as always, to our audience for listening. We encourage you to put any kind of questions, comments, etc. Submit to we're not fine.com. And follow us on our socials. We are on Instagram. It is Dr. Talia Jackson, Douglas L. Jensen with an E-N. Yeah. And also, we keep on forgetting to mention, there's We're Not Fine Pod. It's our actual We're Not Fine on Insta. And we're on YouTube. If you haven't found us, you can always see what Doug is wearing and all the weird things he's doing behind the scenes. And <laughs> we've got a few TikToks out there as well. We're Not Fine Pod. Check it out. I love it. We're not fine. But your local grocery store inevitably has BOGO ice cream. Ours does. 